From seven days of the week to the seven wonders of the world, culture is shaped by sevens, and the all-electric BMW i7 is no exception. Be welcomed in with automatic opening doors, shape your experience behind the wheel with a curved display, or recline in the back seat and escape into the 31-inch theater screen. Reshape the way you drive in the redefining all-electric BMW i7. BMW, the ultimate electric driving machine. See your local BMW center today for a test drive. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Odd Lots podcast is brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. Welcome to Odd Lots. It is Monday, December 7th. I'm Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, managing editor of Bloomberg Markets. Hey. Hey, Joe. Yeah. What's this? <laughs> uh, that is a book. Yes, but specifically, it is a 700-page book on the history of interest rates. Have you uh, read the entire thing? I actually did, and I have to tell you, it is a, a scintillating read that encapsulates everything from Mesopotamian interest rates in 3000 BC to medieval attitudes towards usury, hyperinflation in Argentina in the 1980s. It's actually a pretty famous book in financial circles, and it was first written by Sidney Homer back in 1963. Now, unfortunately, uh, Homer has passed away since then, but I am very excited to say that the guest we have on today is Richard Silla, who's the co-author on the fourth edition of this book and also a professor of economics and financial markets at NYU Stern. So we are about to embark on a rollicking 6,000-year tour of the history of interest rates. So two quick things. They had interest rates back then in Mesopotamia. Like, this is not a totally modern invention. Oh, Joe, you're going to learn so much. And studying interest rates could theoretically be pretty exciting right now because we may be on the verge of our first rate hike in several years. Yes. Yeah, so what better way to prepare for that historic event than to go back in time and learn about Dutch interest rates in the 18th century? Let's do it. I'm excited. Professor Silla, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Um, I have to ask, so when Sidney Homer first published this book in the early 1960s, that was a time when interest rates were not exactly the hot topic matter that they are now. Why do you think he wanted to look at them? Well, Sidney Homer was a kind of a cultured fellow, a Harvard grad who uh, had a career on Wall Street. And I think because he was highly educated and uh, uh, he thought, you know, more than most people do about their jobs. And he wanted to know, you know, he was in the bond markets and he wanted to know, uh, you know, what was uh, the origin of them. And, for example, he'd heard about uh, the Dutch, Dutch finance as being important. Well, exactly what was Dutch finance? And so he embarked on this history of collecting interest rates as much as he could from, uh, you know, all the recorded history up to that time and decided to put it into one, one book called The History of Interest Rates. Now, the book starts in ancient times, and it starts with things like Babylonian kings setting the maximum rates of interest on loans of grain. How in the world did Homer uh, go about collecting the data for this book? 
Well, he, if you're talking about Babylonia, uh, there is a great source there, which many people have heard of, but they probably don't think it has interest rates in it. It's the Code of Hammurabi. It was sort of a great code that came, I think it was about 1800 B.C. or something like that. So it's about uh, 4,000 years ago. And in the Code of Hammurabi, it sort of specifies that if you lend somebody money, the maximum rate you can charge them is 20%. If you lend somebody grain, apparently people lent grain as well as money, the maximum rate was 33 and a third percent. So how did, they, uh, how did Hammurabi derive these figures? Was it a sort of finger in the wind, 20% seemed like the right amount? Or was it something more reflective of the economy where there was a, there was a basis in reality? Well, I suspect that if, since Hammurabi was saying this is the most you can charge, that there were a lot of lending practices both for money and grain, and sometimes people tried to charge more than 20 or 33 and a third percent, and Hammurabi thought that was unreasonable, and so he sort of put a ceiling on what could be charged. And I, I think it was probably sort of customary rates at that time. One of the things I love so much about the book is all the types of collateral that it outlays. So for instance, there's a king of Jerusalem, Baldwin II, who famously pledges his beard for rehypothecation. <laughs> and there's an ancient Greek city that um, pledged its public colonnades. Uh, so when the city defaulted, the citizens couldn't walk down the colonnades anymore, which just seems absolutely absurd to us nowadays. But there's a long history of various types of collateral being used. Yes, I think, you know, there are many, many different kinds of collateral, but uh, the traditional main assets were precious metals and land, but um, I think the, many other things could be used as collateral, particularly for smaller loans. Well, of course, you're citing these, uh, the colonnade, I mean, that's a, a sort of a public uh, convenience, and it's interesting that they would pledge that. They must have needed to borrow a lot of money, perhaps to fight a war. Nowadays, when we think about interest rates, we think about, you know, there's the risk-free rate, and rates often sort of move up and down across the economy with each other. They trend in the same direction. In the very early days when you first have this data of rates and borrowing and lending, how much of the lending was sort of idiosyncratic, just a judgment of the credit risk of the borrower, and how much was the sort of general economic trend at the time? Well, in our book, I think we're talking about mostly about general economic trends because, uh, and I should point this out at the start of our conversation, the book was meant to say what were the lowest interest rates that were prevailing at these various times in history and various civilizations and you know, what was there a pattern to the movement of the rates. But we all know it's, the world then was just like the world today. There are some basic benchmark interest rates or risk-free returns we talk about in finance at the Stern School at NYU. Uh, and other more risky uh, loans are priced off of this sort of basic rate. But the thing we're trying to do mostly in the book, especially when you go far back into civilization, is to say what were the lowest rates people could borrow at at various times in 4,000 years of history. Now, I mean, you're talking about the lowest possible rates. That was actually a huge, huge debate, both in ancient times, uh, medieval times, and going up. I mean, I guess it continues today. And that's the debate over usury and what constitutes a fair rate of interest. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Well, usury, you know, there, we've had a lot of usury laws in history, and, and many people trace it back to Aristotle, you know, a very great philosopher, obviously, uh, one of the greatest ever. But he had a curious idea that I think the translation of the Greeks is money is barren. You know, since money is barren, money doesn't by itself uh, have any productivity. Therefore, interest rate should be zero. 
when you lend something to somebody, you should not charge them interest. And uh, that was a view, uh, I think, that uh, you know, was not widespread, but it was a philosophical view. Then it was picked up by St. Thomas Aquinas mm. in the Middle Ages, and it became part of Catholic teaching that you should not charge people interest. You know, he got it from Aristotle, and it became sort of Catholic teaching. So we come right down to the modern world where we have interest rate ceilings, and uh, not, not that interest rate should be zero. I think that went out a long time ago. But the modern equivalent of it is say the interest rate should not be higher than so many percent. And when those when those usury caps were put in place by various rulers. Again, sort of going back to my first question, was that just something that was that felt right? Twenty percent on lend, on lending money that felt like a limit that uh, I wouldn't would, be breached. I would think that you know the usury ceilings were sort of based on what was normal lending rates at a certain time and, and maybe set around that level or a little bit higher, just just so that people couldn't. Uh, exploit other people. I think the the reason behind it was sometimes loans were for um, what we call consumption loans. There might have been a, a drought and the crops failed. And, and the one idea behind the usury law was that when the crops fail, you shouldn't take advantage of a person who's having a hard time getting enough to eat by charging them interest. Are there early examples of what we would call payday lenders at some point? Basically, institutions specifically designed to take advantage of extraordinarily high levels of interest rates from people in desperate need? Well, we know that the in medieval Europe, especially like in Italy, there were things like pawn shops. And I think probably there were some equivalents of that in the ancient world as well. Because, I mean, it's, just, you know, it's a normal human need, I guess, to have some credit at some times. And, and, you know, I think all of these ancient societies and especially, you know, medieval and modern societies have catered to this. The thing that strikes me the most about attitudes towards what constitutes a high interest rate or not is just how much it changes throughout time. So, for instance, um, I think Hammurabi set the maximum rate at something like 33%. But then we also have a Babylonian temple that was loaning silver at six and a quarter percent. And that was seen as such a low rate that it was almost a charitable deed for people. I mean, what do you think about changing attitudes towards the level of interest rates? Well, I think, you know, I think one of the patterns we found in the book is that there's sort of a, you know, most of these ancient civilizations like Babylonia, Greece, and Rome, there's sort of a U-shaped pattern that when when we first detect interest rates in those civilizations, they're pretty high. And then as they develop and reach their peaks, you know, like, say, Rome and the age of Augustus, the interest rates move down to a very low level. And then, for example, when the Roman Empire was declining and falling, as Edward Gibbon titled his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, you begin to see the rates go up again. And this pattern, we saw it in Babylonia, we saw it in Greece, we see it in Rome. Uh, does it happen in the modern world mm. as well? Right. On that basis, I guess with uh, 0% interest in the U.S., uh, we're at the, the peak of yeah, our empire. That, that's an interesting observation. You know, Are we at the high point of our civilization because interest rates are so low right now? I mean, that when you study this book, it sort of makes you wonder whether uh, you know, we are at some high point of civilization. I would say with all that's going on in the world, that isn't so nice. Yeah, it's we, hard to imagine we're at the high point right now. Yeah, in the, in the early days of when people started studying interest rates, would they have been surprised by the fact that we've had basically very mediocre economy and a lot of economic deterioration, incredible amounts of debt, and yet interest rates have continued to grind lower throughout all this time? 
Well, I, I don't think it's a big surprise because, you know, before these recent very low interest rates, the, the lowest rates that we talk about in, in our country, the United States, were kind of at the end of the 1930s and 1940, where you, you rates were not, in early 1941, interest rates were not all that much higher than they are now. I mean, I think Treasury bills got down to a quarter percent or something like that. But that was right before Pearl Harbor. And, and then when the war came, you know, things went up a little bit. What was your favorite section of the book? Well, I'm a specialist on U.S. economic history, and so I was very interested in in seeing the uh, development of our own markets. Uh, uh, I think rates of 6 and 7 percent were very common in in colonial America and the early United States. And, you know, if somebody asked me what is the typical interest rate in U.S. history that recurs more often than another, I would say about 6 percent. And I've seen a lot of that in my lifetime, and it goes back to the Alexander Hamilton who set up our financial system in the 1790s. His main security when he restructured the U.S. debt in 1790-91 was a 6% bond. A 6% bond paid interest quarterly at a 6% rate, and, and it sold at about, uh, you know, at various times. It varied, of course, but uh, you know, it, it got up to par very quickly. So for someone like me who only entered the workforce uh well, relatively recently, I suppose. I've been living with very, very low interest rates for a long time, and it kind of shocks me to hear that 6% is a normal rate, or even that 20% uh, was reached in the 1980s under Fed Chair uh, Paul Volcker. Well, that's, you know, I, I would say that the highest rates in American history and the lowest rates have occurred in my lifetime. Huh. Uh, the low, you, you know about the low rates, but I'm in 75 years old now, so I was born in 1940, and I started by 1960 or so. I'm keeping track of all these things. And by, as you mentioned, by 1980, 81, interest rates had gone through the roof. They, the government was borrowing at uh, 14, 15%, and mortgage rates were 18%, and Treasury bills, I think, or prime rates at banks reached 20%. But of course, we had a lot of inflation then. So we sometimes we need to talk about real interest rates versus nominal interest rates. One of the things that it really fascinates me, and it's a phenomenon, obviously, that's been going on for a while, is the perennial overestimation of where interest rates will go. So we've basically, in the U.S., we've had declining rates for several decades, yet almost every year when Wall Street analysts are polled, they always think interest rates are going to turn around and this will be the year that rates go higher. Looking back historically, are there any similar phenomenon where basically we saw a trend go on for an extremely long time without some kind of mean reversion surprising a lot of people in the process? Well, I would say if you study U.S. interest rate history and go back at, at least since the middle to the, you know, the last part of the 19th century, one thing we establish is that interest rates trend for maybe 20 or 30 years. They trended down in the late 19th century, uh, then they turned around at the end of the 19th century and trended up to about 1920, then they trended down to 1945 or 46, then they trended up to 1981, those very extremely high rates we were talking about, and from those peaks in 1981, we got gradually back to more normal rates, and now we've gotten to these extremely low rates. So there are these 20, 30-year trends. If we go back to 1981, I guess it's 34 years that rates have trended down. Hmm. And that's kind of at the high end of Hmm. the trend. And so we're talking about the Fed possibly raising rates soon and normalizing rates. So maybe the trend is about over. All right. We're going to be back in one minute after a word from our sponsors. 
You're listening to the Odd Lots podcast, brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here. So I have to ask, uh, the book ends in 2005. That was the fourth edition. Would you ever do a fifth edition? And if so, what would you put in it? Well, I was asked recently by the publisher, John Wiley, whether I would be interested in putting out a fifth edition. And um, because the book keeps selling every year, it's sort of a minor evergreen book. Uh, and not, not a, you know, I'm not getting rich off of this book, but I get a little check every year. And uh, uh, so the book keeps on selling. And uh, the way, of course, a publisher wants to keep on selling it is to you know, update it. But I said it's, I think it's a little too early because we are just you know, maybe reaching this bottom in interest rates. And I would like to have the, some perspective of two or three years, let's say, of normalizing interest rates, which is what the Fed is sort of promising, you know, to get some perspective on this period we've been through, which is kind of unique in the annals of history. So I think it's a little bit too early to uh, revise the book. Going back long back into history, you mentioned the Code of uh, Hammurabi as being one source of interest rates. What are some other surprising places one finds interest rate data recorded? Well, the Middle Ages, uh, you know, had public debt markets in the, the Italian city-states, for example, and so there are interest rates there on uh, public bonds, and and uh, there were also bankers who lent money to uh, kings, uh, for, usually for fighting wars. And one of the interesting things I found was that the bankers would charge the kings and other politicians a much higher rate than they charged the merchants that they dealt with. The merchants had much better credit than the heads of state did. In the modern world, usually the lowest interest rates are on government debts because the governments are, you know, have taxing powers and can print money, and so you sort of feel safe holding a government bond. But there was a reverse of that in the uh, medieval world. The merchants had good credit. They were honorable businessmen, and the kings had terrible credit. This is actually one of my favorite parts in the book. There was a reason for that, right? Especially in France. Well, in France and England and uh, you know other places, the uh, Spain it was a famous example. I mean, the kings would often default. You know, they would borrow the money and they wouldn't pay it back. You know, they had that in those days something called the divine right of kings, and it seemed to me one of the divine rights of a king was not to repay people that he promised to repay. <laughs> Right. So you could take out loans yeah. and then essentially banish all your bankers if you were a prince of France or Spain or elsewhere. Sounds good. Yeah, it's a good life. Yeah. Well, the Italians, you know, the Italian bankers in 11, 12, 1300 lent money to the King of England. He didn't pay them back. So many of these early banks failed when, when they didn't get their money paid back. King Philip II of Spain uh, in the uh, 16th century borrowed money for all kinds of wars. And uh, he defaulted, but generally he defaulted to, on payment when it was due, but generally he paid it back a little bit later. So he kind of kept his credit. We call him a serial defaulter. He could keep on <laughs> borrowing because eventually he would pay them back. And I think the bankers charged him enough interest so that they came out whole. And so now we think that if a uh, sovereign were to default, then you would then see a huge wave of defaults throughout the private sector of the economy at the same time, just as for knock-on effects. But it wasn't necessarily the case back then. No, I think sovereign defaults then were, you know, kind of... Um, they did it quite frequently, and uh -huh. the bankers were used to it. But you know, one way they made up for it, to see the businessmen, the merchants, didn't default, so they got a low rate. So you might say the insurance against the default was built into the king's interest rate, which could be two or three times higher than what businessmen could borrow at. So we've been talking about thousands of years 
worth of interest rates. If you were to distill all that information, all 700 pages of your book, into one simple pattern or takeaway for listeners of the show, what would it be? Well, the thing that impressed me about looking at all the different civilizations, and remember we're, we're looking at the lowest interest rates, that there is an association between how well a civilization or a society is doing and the level of its interest rates. And so when you have kind of low interest rates, it probably means that things are pretty well ordered. Now, I wouldn't say that I feel that way about our low interest rates right now because they may be just a phenomenon of the recent financial crisis and what we had to do to fight it. But over the long period of history, you know, uh, Greek interest rates were low in the time of uh, Aristotle and Roman interest rates were low in the time of Augustus. And when you look at the other low interest rate societies, you know, medieval Italy was the most financially advanced and had the lowest rates. Then you get Spain and the Netherlands and then England and then the United States, you know, and you can sort of see that when these societies or these civilizations were doing well, they had low interest rates. And then eventually, you know, the rates turn up. Now, maybe that takes a long period of time, but we we tend to think our American civilization will last forever, but that isn't what history seems to indicate. Professor Silla is the co-author of A History of Interest Rates, fourth edition, and professor of economics and financial institutions at NYU Stern. He also has a great project tracing the genealogy of financial institutions, which you can look up on the internet, and I highly recommend you do so. Professor Silla, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. So, uh, thus concludes our tour of interest rate history. Joe, what did you learn? I love that discussion. One thing I love about financial history discussions is you see how there are very few new debates in economics or finance. All of these things that we regard as modern or we talk about them as though they're new, not only have they been talked about before, but often hundreds and thousands of years before. Yeah, although I did hear a lot of things in that discussion that make me wonder if it's different this time, which is, of course, this idea that we have interest rates in 30-year cycles and also the idea of negative interest rates. Yeah, and the idea that historically low interest rates were seen as a proxy for the health of the economy Mm. and higher interest rates were seen as bad, which is funny because right now everyone's sort of hoping that higher rates signals a new era of economic (laughs) prosperity, and yet we keep sort of getting disappointed and concerned about what it means that rates keep plunging. Yes, indeed. All right. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me at Tracy Alloway on Twitter. And I'm Jill Weisenthal at The Stalwart on Twitter. Thanks so much for joining us, and please tune in next week for another episode of Odd Lots. Joe and I are very proud of our new podcast, Odd Lots, but we are also very proud of Bloomberg's other growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, financial markets, and the global economy. So in addition to our own podcast, please don't miss Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. Then there's Deal of the Week with our M&A reporter, Alex Sherman, which is a breakdown of the biggest M&A deals and gives you an inside peek at corporate boardrooms. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast for Android, Bloomberg.com, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal. You've been listening to the Odd Lots podcast brought to you by ExxonMobil. Energy lives here.
The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.